Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ashadu in la ilaha illallahu wahduhu la sharikalahu wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Just a little more energy here. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Brothers and sisters, I have been asked to speak briefly about the topic about the Muslim history in America. And I want to say at the outset that for many Americans, the presence of Muslims in this area called the United States or in North America in general did not start until September the 11th, 2001. It was as if the history of Muslims and Islam in this part of the world had no meaning or no relevance whatsoever, even that we did not exist until 9-11. So I want to briefly disabuse any one of you or anyone who may have this idea that we are a new project that has recently been started here in these United States. I want to just set a historical backdrop and just mention a couple of visitors to this land who were Muslim. When the history is written as it has been written, it records that in 889, a Muslim from Spain, from Spanish Muslim area in Andalusia, by the name of Kashkash ibn Said, sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and sailed back to Andalusia. And it's recorded that he made this particular trip because of what he brought back from the uh, the western side of the Atlantic Ocean, what he brought back to Spain. But this was just a brief visit. It was not the beginning of an extensive immigration, or not the beginning of a settlement of the United States or this land area of North America by Muslims. But it is factually recorded that as early as 889, that a Moor Moorish Muslim sailed across the Atlantic and came back into Andalusia. And then I want to jump just a little few centuries and talk about the expedition of the king of Mali at the time in the early 1300s by the name of Abu Bakari I. Some of you may be more familiar with his little brother whose name was Mansa Musa. But can can <clears throat> Abu Bakari I was a very adventuresome king. And he realized that when merchants and on deliberate voyages that people would get to a certain point in the Atlantic Ocean and seem to be drawn into some kind of whirlpool and pulled across the water. And in one of these experiences when he recognized that the people were just being sucked away and one time when only reported to the king, he decided that he himself would outfit 2,000 ships, a thousand ships of men, and a thousand ships filled with supplies. And this particular expedition, we know that these West Africans from the Muslim kingdom at that time of Mali actually made it into the Western Hemisphere. And how do we know that they made it? We know that they made it because of the things that they left behind. We know that they made it 
and did not come back because his little brother Mansa Musa said when he made this splendid Hajj in 1324 where he gave in Sadaka so much gold that the gold standard between West Africa and Mecca had to be devalued because he gave so much in Sadaka on the occasion of this Hajj. He gave us this account of how his brother set sail and never came back. But we know that he made it because of the things that were left behind, the coinage that was coming from the Mali Empire of the 14th century that was found in, in, in uh, Central America, in South America, in the southwest of the United States. We know it because of the cave drawings that we see in Arizona. That the scholarship tells us that, and I haven't seen it myself, but if even today, if you go into these caves, you see people who look like Africans, very dark-skinned people sitting atop animals that were not current in this Western environment. They were elephants. And so the Native American were drawing these people who were bringing these strange creatures called elephants into the area. There's other documentation as far as Canada that showed that this adventurous spirit of the Muslims from West Africa in the 14th century didn't just stop the moment that they landed, that they didn't come like those to come later as conquistadores to come out of Spain and to try to conquer the people and take the land. And so we just advance this narrative a little bit more and then we come to the person that you and I are most familiar with the one who discovered people who were already there, the one who thought that he was in the Indian subcontinent, but he was thousands of miles in, on another landmass who had bumped into the Caribbean island, the one that is held in the history books as having discovered America in 1492, Christopher Columbus. But let me just say something briefly because I know in Imam Zaid's presentation, he will give us all of the history pre-1492 about Spain, but I just want to mention that if you and I know anything about this history and the history of Andalusia in 1492, it was a time when the Jewish population was totally expelled out of Spain. But it was another two centuries before the Muslims in 1608 in our own long march, that we were marched out of Spain and marched to this Strait of Gibraltar and carried across and then marched and then taken up into other parts of Europe. But at this same time in 1492, when Cristobal Colon, Christopher Columbus, sailed across the Atlantic. One of the things that he and others were trying to do in subsequent voyages, read the history yourself. And you see that the only reason they were trying to find this other route was because there were two Muslim empires at that time that were controlling land and maritime routes, so they were trying to find a way, how can we avoid these Ottomans? How can we avoid these Mamluks? Well, let's try sailing in the opposite direction. 
So we don't have to go across the land. We don't have to go in the waters that they control. Let's try something novel and different. So they start setting sail. And Christopher Columbus was just that cat's paw that reached over into this side of the world, actually thinking he was somewhere else. But they were trying to get to these spice lands and these lands of riches by going and circumventing the Muslim empires that control the landmass at the time. And so if we want to say, well, the only reason Chris was sailing in that direction was because of the Muslims, that we were the inspiration for them to even come this way in the first place, you could say that and have some validity to that. But if we look a little further into this history as Chris came into this area, he made three voyages. He ended up as a slaver. Chris was a no good man. Don't believe the hype. Anything you read good about this man, don't believe it. He was an awful personality. And Chris, in his awfulness, in his own writings, he talks about on his second voyage as he went into the area of Cuba today, he looked and he saw this, uh, this masjid sitting on top of a mountain. And Chris said that it was the most beautiful masjid I'd ever seen. Now here's a man who wasn't originally from Spain, but he had seen the architecture of the Muslims in El Andalus. And this man is saying that as I was coming on my second voyage, I saw the most beautiful masjid I'd ever seen on the top of a mountain in Cuba. What does that suggest to any of us? It should, should suggest that there had to be some Muslims to, who have traveled across this ocean before Chris. Allah knows best. No one can say with any certainty were these the descendants of Abu Bakari the first who traveled over 100 years before, about 150 years before Chris got lost. Chris talked about other experiences that he saw in this so-called new world where he identified clearly these people of Muslims. He talked about the ships that he saw and he said, these people look like Moors. The men had turbans on their head. The women, some of them were veils on their faces. Now this is what Christopher Columbus is writing in his own handwriting in 1493. Brothers and sisters, at the same time, as the, and I have to speed, put this on speed dial a little bit. But by the same token, it was not just the Spaniards and the Portuguese who were sailing into this new hemisphere. In the 1600s, we find the presence of the British throughout the eastern seaboard. And a strange thing happened when the British start coming into the New World that after the Muslims were expelled in 1608 from Spain, after the Jewish community had either been forcibly converted or, or kicked out of Spain in 1492, that when the British came over, they brought with them many Sephardic Jews and Muslims, and many of these Muslims that is now historically documented was settling in these original colonies where the British were coming over and establishing. 
that because of their histories in Spain, they realize and recognize that no, we can't come over here calling myself Abdul Rahman. I can't come into this area necessarily identifying myself with a population that has been expelled out of Europe itself. And so when we look at this history and we dig deep enough, we find that there were Muslims, oftentimes the Moriscos, those who had to pretend at the point of death, the threatening of death in Spain before they were expelled to pretend that they were Christian or more specifically Catholic in order not to be killed. If we move this narrative just a little further, we find that now we're at a point where we're talking about the history of Muslims in this country where it's being peopled by Muslims. But this time it's not coming through adventurers and sailing across the Atlantic, it's coming in the bowels of slave ships. It's coming while these folks, are, the Europeans, are going into West Africa, going into North Africa, and in capturing, they're capturing Muslims. And a footnote to this particular history that we all should hear, because you hear it sometimes from those who are enemies of Islam, they talk about, well, the Muslims sold their African brothers into slavery. This, in many cases, this was true. But we look in the time frames in which the transatlantic slave trade was most active and we find that what was going on, that there was a jihad that was taking place in West Africa and being, and I don't have time to get into a lot of this, but that there was a jihad taking place between the Muslims against their non-Muslim uh, people sharing the same space. And as was the practice, not just in West Africa, but in Arabia and so many other places, if you are a loser in a battle, you could become a, a prisoner of war, you could be sold into slavery. And so, yes, there were many Muslims who sold West Africans into slavery, but it was after, Allahu Alam, these jihads, where they were fighting against each other. They had no idea the kind of slavery that was awaiting on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Let me speed up a little bit here. So now we're talking about the, a transatlantic slave trade that is including Muslims in the bowels of these slave ships. We're talking about their coming people are being kidnapped and snatched from their homes and from their families, torn apart and forcibly brought to this country to enslave for what would go on for another 270, 280, 300 years. We're talking about a land mass and a group of people who had had glorious empires for Islam but now found themselves as the brunt of the venom against the, by the European nations who hated what they had done in Spain for 800 years. They hated what they had done in enslaving white Christians and their raids and their pirates and other things. They hated this thing, so now it was time to take it out on the descendants of the people who had caused them so much problem in their imperialistic designs. 
brothers and sisters, there are stories that are mostly biographies. They're not just stories. It's not like oral history that is retold. But they are biographies of many Muslims who survived the middle passage, the capture, the middle passage. They survived slavery and maintained their Islam throughout their entire period of enslavement. But these are the stories of a magnificent few. Because the majority of the Muslims and research is pointing to now maybe one out of every three African slaves that were brought to this country were Muslim, that the research is showing now that these magnificent few, that their stories were not typical. That the typical Muslim by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, some even suggest by the millions of people if not presently, but in their ancestral chain, who were brought to this country as Muslim, that the majority of them had their Islam forcibly beat out of them and branded out of them and women torn apart and tortured out of them. That particularly in the United States, they were separated. You had Hafiz of Quran coming to this area and then being denied the ability to even receive the Quran in public or to pray in public. So when we see stories of these magnificent few, no matter how inspiring they may be, know that their stories can be multiplied by tens of thousands were it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's kata that the history unfold in a different kind of way. And so we have, and I'll just give briefly this story, and I have to fast forward through a lot of history here. But so we have the stories of people like my homeboy in North Carolina, Omar Ibn Said. Omar Sa Ibn Said, if you read his story, was from West Africa, that he was captured and brought over as a slave. He was a, an educated, Islamically educated Muslim that this was a person who was taken into slavery, brought into Charleston, South Carolina in the 1700s. That Omar Ibn Said escaped from Charleston, but he was captured again in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He was put in a cell and was writing with charcoal on the walls, and people would come by and laugh and say that that African has gone crazy. Look at the crazy stuff that he's writing on the wall. But one of these enlightened people came by and said, well, that's not gibberish. He's not crazy. That's Arabic. As a matter of fact, I've seen that before. That's even from the Quran. There's stories about someone like Yaro Mahmoud, someone who, when his pit portrait was painted in about 1888 by this colonial painter by the name of Charles Peel, that Yaro was living in the Georgetown section of Washington, D.C., and when Peel said, show me some unusual people, they supported him to Yarrow. This is the strangest old slave I have. The guy even said that Yarrow, I believe he's 140 years old. Yarrow was an old man, but he was not 140. He said, the man is crazy. He bumps his head on the floor during different times of the day. Certain times of the year, he tries to starve himself to death. 
He's a weird old guy, but he talks with good sense, but he's weird. Of course, Yaro was a Muslim. And although he lived to be over 100 years old, he maintained the practice of Islam. He ended up buying his own freedom. He ended up buying a house in Washington, D.C. He ended up getting married. He ended up being a part of a bank in Washington. He accumulated so much money that he was lending money to merchants. This is the genius of part of those tens of thousands who were entrapped and forcibly made to enslave in this country for so many years. So let me fast forward. I keep saying that. Imam Zaid, I'm really going to fast forward this time. Real quick fast forward. And in this fast forward, I fast forward. Only was the presence of Islam found in the African community, but we also found it in the Native American community as so many of the Muslim slaves escaped from their masters. And they wanted to find refuge, and many of these native tribes took them in. And so one of the tribes in the eastern part of uh, the United States, the Cherokee tribe, up until the 1800s, that tribe would have Muslim-named chiefs in their tribes. Look at the dress of the Cherokees from that era. And you see the men wearing long shirts and the women have things on their heads that Islam, whether it's the Seminoles or the Cherokees or throughout this country, that many of the Muslims interacted and married and had children with the native people. So Islam was also growing during this particular time. Let me quickly go on in this period after the Civil War, that there was a, a presence of Muslims during the, uh, in the Revolutionary War. There was the presence of Muslims in the Civil War. If anyone saw the movie, and most of you may have been too young to look at it, but you need to Google it, or not Google it, but go to Netflix and look up the movie uh, Glory. This is a movie by Denzel, uh, that stars Denzel Washington. It's one of the stars. And in this particular movie, it's a true story that's set during the period of the Civil War. It's about the 55th, or 54th, I'm sorry, the 54th Free Colored Regiment out of Boston, Massachusetts. And this was a different kind of phenomenon, to have all black troops fighting in the Civil War. But then there was the 55th that came after this particular regiment. And it had included a Muslim by the name of Muhammad uh, Ali ibn Said, I think his name is. I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name. Muhammad Ali ibn Said, I think is his name, who was a registered member of this 55th. So if you look at the movie about Denzel, you'll see the kind of struggles that are captured in this. But there was at least one Muslim in the next regiment. There are the history of Islam and bringing this to a conclusion. Now, how am I going to cover 200 years in two minutes? But I'll do it. I promise I'm going to do this. That uh, in the history of Islam, moving in the post-slavery era, moving into the era leading up to World War I and after World War I, after World War II, up until 1965, 
the presence of Muslims in this country for the most part was determined and dictated by the immigration policies of this country. That if you go back and just look at the racist immigration policies of this country for so many years, citizenship in this country was only for white folks. No matter whether you were born here, you were brought here as a slave, it didn't matter. And until this legislation changed over the actual centuries, and until 1965 when a new immigration law was put into effect in this country, that many of your parents and your grandparents until 1965 were very limited in their ability to migrate to the United States and establish a presence here in the United States. And so I promise I'll be finished in two minutes. I have done tremendous violence to legacies like Al-Haj Malik Al-Shabazz, Malcolm X. I've done tremendous violence to legacies like Wally Akram out of Cleveland and so many others. So before he do like the Apollo Theater, they used to have the shows and they had the gong and they come and pull you off the stage. Before my brother pulls me off the stage, assalamu alaikum.